Hello and welcome. My name is Amelia, otherwise known as DJ EJ, and this is Club Crime, a true crime broadcast recording live here at KTCU. How is everyone? I know I ask that every week, but honestly, I'm so happy to be here. This weekend was long and honestly kind of rough um but i'm so happy to be here honestly this is like the highlight of my week every week doing club crime um and thank you to all the listeners of last week's episode we had Addie on um and if you haven't listened to that episode please go listen to us on spotify and apple podcasts and follow us on instagram and twitter at club crime official all right so it's that time again what everyone loves our new surprise guest so i'd like to introduce you to my friend alexa alexa would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners yes hello everyone my name is alexa i'm a junior acting major at tcu and i am a true crime lover yay <laughs> um do you want to talk about how you got into true crime like why, why are you here today basically yeah sure um this is kind of a random story but I grew up in Wichita, Mm -hmm. Kansas, and BTK was from Wichita. When I was like six months old, he resurfaced, and my dad was like away for six weeks for training for a new job. So it was just me and my mom in the Mm -hmm. house, and he resurfaced. And he resurfaced by turning Mm -hmm. in the driver's license of one of my mom's friends from high school, her mother. Oh, wow. And anyways, yeah, he was found pretty close to where we live. That's crazy. And I guess I've just been very interested in the psychology of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how are you? Just generally, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, (laughs) All right. So I'm going to tell you your guest duties and why you're here today. So I'm going to tell you a true crime story. It is your job to react, ask questions, add in your own personal anecdotes, and just add to the story in any way that you want. All right. Sounds easy enough. All right. So you have to promise to the listeners that I did not tell you what story I'll be telling you today. I promise. You promise? Do you have any guesses? Do you want to take a little, like, random stab at it? I'm interested. I kind of, I mean, my gut is telling me maybe like a serial killer, but also Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like a supernatural happening or something i don't know well you're honestly pretty close (laughs) so today's story is the hillside strangler case a serial killer case oh okay so sources for tonight's story include the los angeles times crimemuseum.org crimeinvestigation.uk forensictales.com and wikipedia everyone's favorite wikipedia (laughs) yes All right, so let's do some background. So from the late 1960s to the late 1980s, Los Angeles was known as the serial killer capital of the world. Oh my gosh. (laughs) With murders ranging from the Manson family, who was our first episode, to Richard Ramirez, who was the like, I don't remember his like name, but he was one of those famous serial killers of the time. Um, Oh my gosh. I'm completely blanking on his name, but during this time period, over 20 serial killers were reported to be working simultaneously in Los Angeles. 20? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Isn't that insane? In Los, just in, Los just Angeles. Just in Los Angeles. Like, oh not gosh. just, like, over the U.S., like, just in Los Angeles. I didn't know it was the, like, the world's largest serial killer population yeah that's crazy and it's like my parents grew up there like during that time period i'm like how did these people survive how old were they when this was all happening my dad would have been like you know early teens between this time and then my mom was like 
you know, also pretty early. Like, from the 60s to 80s, mm-hmm. they were, like, late teens, early 20s, you know, still growing up in the area. That's so. bizarre. So, between October 1977 and February 1978, 10 young women were raped and murdered in the hills of Los Angeles. The murders were initial the murders were initially thought to have been done by one person, and thus the media dubbed the murder as the Hillside Strangler. Huh. So, let's talk about all of the murders. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we're going to go consecutively. Oh, wonderful. Um Because I honestly wanted to switch, because I always talk about the killer first, and I'm like, this killer needs to be, like, a big, you know, reveal. Like, we're going to build up to this. I'm all for it. So, the first victim was Yolanda Washington, a prostitute who worked on a certain stretch of Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. Her body was found on October 17th, 1977, off of the Ventura Freeway, with Detective Frank Salerno of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department being called to the scene. So, Washington's body was found naked with faint marks around the throat, wrist, and ankles where a rope was used. And that's called, like, five-point marks, if that's where your marks are found. Um, And the body was raped, but it was cleaned and dumped before it had been dumped. So, they didn't find any DNA evidence on it. What? And this basically became, like, the mark of the hillside strangler. So, he would... They would clean all their victims? Not clean, but they would have the five-point marks all over their body and then be, like, you know, sexually assaulted in some way. That's horrible. It's horrible. It's god-awful. So, on November 1st, 1977, 15-year-old Judith Miller's body was found on a parkway in Alta Terrace Drive in La Crescenta. The homeowner that found Miller discovered her body with a t- or covered her body with a tarp to prevent any children going to school from seeing her body. Which what? I'm like that's so that's terrible. Of like you walk out first thing in the morning, oh, there's a dead body, got to cover it up with a tarp. Like so before the- calling any police or anything. I guess so, which I'm also like like why would Part you of me's like it? good. Like good you're like, you know, saving the kids but it's also like you're kind of destroying some evidence yeah seriously disturbing the crime scene so oh my gosh so the body had once again was determined to have been dumped and similar ligature marks which are the rope marks Mm -hmm. were found um all over her body and she had been raped and also sodomized oh my gosh oh um so Already just, like, terrible, terrible things are being done to these girls. Miller was a former student of Hollywood High School, and she was also a runaway and occasional sex worker. She had last been seen alive on October 31st, 1977, talking to a man in a large two-tone sedan on Sunset Boulevard. Hmm. The Stranglers posed as an undercover police officer, then handcuffed Miller and took her to one of the killer's auto upholstery shop at 703 East Colorado Street in Glendale, where she was then killed. And keep that upholstery shop in mind, because we're going to bring it up later in two different things. Oh my gosh, Um, okay. So... The next victim was 21-year-old waitress Lisa Caston, and her nude body was found on November 6th, 1977, near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. Oh my God. 
which I know country club country club but also the Chevy Chase country club (laughs) I just think it's so funny Uh, Chase country club and I think this was before um, Chevy Chase did yeah. um, Caddyshack, too. Oh <laughs> so I'm like, this is just so ironic that, like... <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. Ugh. You know, I was, like, I was writing this down. I was like, that's just such a, like, this is so offbeat, but this is such, like, a random name for Oh, it. my gosh. The Chevy Chase Country Club. I wonder if Chevy Chase was, like, informed. Like hey we found yeah hey just wanted to let you know um there's a dead body found hey chevy chase like you know love your work we found the dead body um, (laughs) love your work also at your country club so her body was also raped but it was not sodomized and she once again had the five point ligature marks that washington and miller bore Caston was not a sex worker, and she was the first of the victims not to be a sex worker, mm-hmm. but was instead instead a professional dancer for the Los Angeles Knockers, and was taken um, after the Stranglers once again posed as undercover police officers. So huh. we'll talk about why they were going as undercover police officers later. Okay. And also note, so I am saying Stranglers because they originally thought it was one person, it's two. Oh. But oh. we technically don't know that yet. Okay. In my brain, it's still just one person. Yeah, but we'll, I'll keep saying stranglers just to keep, you know. Because it's like, sake. yeah, continuity's yeah. sake. Um, so the next person was found around early November, and it was 20, or so actually this was not the next person killed. This was the next person who they attempted to kill but didn't. Oh, a survivor? A survivor. Oh, Okay. So, around early November, 24-year-old Catherine Lohr Baker, daughter of actor Peter Lohr, was approached by two men posing as undercover police officers. These men were, in fact, the Stranglers, and Baker was able to identify them following their arrest. Oh, gosh. So, she didn't know it was them until after they were arrested. But the Stranglers had originally planned to abduct and murder Baker, though once she produced a driver's license and a photo of her in her father's lap, the the abduction was aborted as the pair thought that her murder would cause too much media attention. Huh. So, they recognized her dad. And what's interesting is Peter Lohr had recently, a couple years prior to, yeah. like, The Strangler starting, had played a serial killer in oh a movie gosh. called M. Oh, my gosh. Which I think is just kind of, like, it's not, like... And they didn't know it was her, so it's not like that was planned or anything. And, okay. of course, they, like, stopped, That was just happenstance. Know, it was just happenstance. So that, they like, didn't... Her, it was not premeditated at all it was that not, she was yeah. the one. Okay. Said, most of these were not premeditated. Most of them, it was just, like, they found the girl just on the street somewhere went up to them as undercover police officers oh my gosh. and then did this. What? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Which is already, like, I guess it's the 70s, so it's, like, harder to prove things, but it's yeah. already, like, I really hope these girls were asking, to like, can I see your badges? Like, Yeah, seriously. Because, yeah. So she, she didn't. They, so they didn't take her anything. because They just aborted. They just immediately were like, okay, you're good, you can go still acting like police officers because they weren't doing these like some serial killers do do like murders for attention they weren't doing these for attention they were literally just doing it because and we'll talk about their motives later but they just hated women for the most part like that's what on earth their only reason oh my doing this so on november 13th 1977 Dolores Capeta, who was 12, and Sonia Johnson, who was 14, were last seen getting off a bus on York Boulevard and North Avenue 46. 
and they were approached by a two-tone sedan that reportedly had two men inside. Their naked bodies were found by a nine-year-old boy near Dodger Stadium. And they were found on November 20th, 1977, both pretty badly decomposing. Oh my gosh. They were once again found to have been strangled and raped like the other bodies had. Earlier that same day, on November 20th, 1977, hikers found the naked body of 20-year-old Christina Weckler on a hillside between Glendale and Eagle Rock. And before we go any further, I always have personal connections to these stories. I knew it. My dad did grow up in Eagle Rock. Oh, my god. And gosh. we'll talk about this. That's not the only connection. We'll get into the big <laughs> connection later. But I just want I just heard Eagle Rock and I was like in Dodgers. My dad also grew up near Dodger Stadium, oh too. So I was like, oh, this is this was close to my dad. Yeah. So Weckler was an honors student at the Art Center College of Design. Mm-hmm. While she was also raped and strangled, there were bruises on her wrists or on her breasts. She had been sodomized. And here's the like weirdest, most god awful part. She had puncture wounds on her arms from where the stranglers injected her with Windex. Windex? Mm-hmm. So this is when they start to torture their victims. So it's not like they strangle. It's not just like they strangle and rape them. It's now they torture them on top of it all. Oh, my gosh. Windex. Windex. Which was another thing I'm wondering is when things happen like this where, like, someone dies and, like, a name household brand is, like, involved in it, what does that do for, like, Oh, my gosh. Because I was thinking that. And it was, like, obviously, like, I'm sure the police obviously released the information that she had been injected with Windex. So what does Windex do with that information? Did they have like a damage control campaign? I didn't look up anything about it, but I'm sure they had to. That's so. Or like at least like it maybe like women just stopped buying Windex during this time. Because could you imagine like. I just couldn't imagine even being a woman during this time, growing no. like living in Los Angeles. No, I don't think I'd want to stay in Los no, Angeles. No, I would leave. Yeah, no, that's crazy. Yeah. So it's yeah. So they're now torturing their victims, like even like more so, showing that. Did they, they just, know where she was when they approached her? Like, was she? I'm assuming she was by herself. She was by herself, and it was once again a case of like she was just walking home and like. Once again, ladies Walking listening, home. please do not walk home by yourself. Or anyone oh listening, gosh. don't walk home Seriously. alone. Go home with people. So on November 23rd, 28-year-old aspiring actress Evelyn Jane King's body was found badly decomposing. And her body was the worst decomposed out of any of the bodies. Her state of decomposition uh, made it so that investigators were unable to determine whether or not she had been raped or sodomized, though she was, in fact, strangled. And at this point, the LAPD finally puts together a task force to catch who they thought was only one predator. And this is when the media officially dubs the serial killer as the hillside strangler. How many victims did it take for them to assemble a task force? Let's count. Oh, my gosh. One, two... Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight? Eight. And remember, there's ten victims, so. Oh my gosh. There's. Okay. Well, and their ages are ranging from 12 12 to like 28. Oh my gosh. 
So it's literally just any girl they can find on the street. Any, like, woman, any child, like... And they're all female. Yeah. And it, it just took them that long to connect that it was the same person, or I guess I'm sure they had use. already connected it, but I think it was, like... I don't remember. There's, like, a certain amount of killings that have to be done in the same manner for their, it to be considered a serial killer. Okay. And then I think it's, like, five. And then after that, to, like, not cause public hysteria, sometimes the police will wait until, oh. like, immediate action is bad enough that they need to do it. So I think so. it was also, like... Because they're also in, like, such a short time period that I'm sure it was also, like, you have to wait for autopsies. You have to wait for, you know, this DNA evidence to come back. And so when that doesn't come back immediately, especially at this time when we didn't have such great technology, you know, it's just, like, a waiting game. So I think this was finally when they had enough evidence to prove, okay, we we have a serial killer. Okay. So, 18-year-old business student Lauren Wagner was found in the hills around Los Angeles's Mount Washington, which is a famous neighborhood, on November 29, 1977. She had the same ligature marks as the others, as well as burn marks on her hand, which is another sign that, they, that she had been tortured. Oh my gosh. Wagner lived with her parents, who expected her home at midnight. The next morning, they found her car parked across the street of her house with the door ajar now here's just the absolute like worst part oh no the neighbor who had seen the abduction but didn't call the police said that she that they saw wagner was approached by a tall and young man and an older and short man with bushy hair she had also heard wagner cry out you won't get away with this during her abduction they did nothing she did, like, she, I think the parents called the police the next morning, and then when the neighbors saw the police there the next morning, they finally said something. But they didn't say they anything. They didn't say anything while Wagner it was happening? When was getting abducted. Oh my, <laughs> what? Like, there are times to mind your business, but that's not the time I'm to so- mind your own business. So, like, when, when you say they saw her being abducted, like, forcefully mm-hmm. taken... They witnessed that. They witnessed it, like, from their window. Like, they just watched it. And didn't do anything and about it. didn't do anything about it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's just, like... And it was right across the street from her house, too. Yes. Like, literally what? right across the street. On December 14th, 1977, 17-year-old sex worker Kimberly Diane Martin was found on a deserted lot near Los Angeles' City Hall. Martin worked as a call girl out of fear of the strangler who was known to take sex workers off the street. Martin was then dispatched from a Hollywood public library payphone. And when investigators searched the apartment she was dispatched to, was found broken into and vacant. And that apartment was, or she was dispatched by the stranglers. So could you imagine you know you're like okay i'm gonna be a call girl now because if i'm still gonna work as a prostitute i might as well do it in a way that's maybe safer way it didn't like (laughs) so they just like target her targeted her specifically they didn't target her it was like an anonymous so those like payphones you just call and then they'll like whatever available girl okay oh yes so she was just like happened to be the available girl and she did that out of fear of those, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that's horrible. Just, I, this was the one that I was just like the most shocked by. Cause I was like, 
I whenever I like write these, I try to imagine like putting myself into like these victims' shoes and yeah. like what would I have been feeling like in that moment? I would have been like, I of course I wouldn't have been scared, but I would have been so pissed of like, yeah, I did everything in my power to, to stay make, away to from stay this. away from this, and I'm still here, like about oh to die. Oh my gosh, how old was she? Seventeen. Seventeen. And was this the last victim? Um, so I was wrong. So this is the ninth victim. I okay. accidentally counted, um, Lore Baker in the count originally, oh. but she was the one that, like, had escaped the abduction. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're So right. the, she was number nine. So now we'll go to the final Hillside Strangler victim. She was found on February 17th after a helicopter noticed an abandoned orange car midway down a cliff on the Los Angeles Crest Highway. Her name was Cindy Hudspeth, and she was 20 years old, and her body was found inside the trunk of her car by the police. She was naked, had the signature ligature marks, and was raped, tortured, and stuffed into her trunk after being killed. Now, Hudspeth's murder was not initially planned, though when she arrived at one of the Strangler's upholstery shop, as talked about earlier... A private conversation was had to make her their next victim. <laughs> so now we'll actually talk about the killers oh and gosh. who they are. The Hillside Strangler Stranglers were eventually identified as Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono Jr. Bianchi was born on May 22, 1951, in Rochester, New York, and was the adopted child of Nicholas Bianchi and his wife, Frances Ciolonio Bianchi. Bianchi had a troubled life and was known as a compulsive liar, pervert, and was mentally ill. And unfortunately, his own mother, like, was a sex worker, and he was given up for adoption after his, like, biological mother had had him. So, Bianchi, of course, had this very troubled childhood. He was, you know, doing petty theft. Mm -hmm. He, at one point, started pulling down little girl's underwear and decided that he liked it, so he just kept doing it. At what Um, age? As a teenager. Oh, my gosh. Um, When his father died suddenly of pneumonia, he had no reaction, didn't cry or anything. Nothing at all? Nothing. Uh And... He had an IQ of 116, which is above average, Yeah. but he would not do well in school because he just didn't want to do any of the work. So he was just like, everyone said like, oh, it's, he's so lazy. He won't do anything. Huh. So Bianchi then left New York on, in January of 1976 due to his crimes of petty theft, which kept him on the move constantly because he didn't want to get caught. Yeah. And he moved in with his cousin, Buono Jr., Angelo Buono Jr. was born on October 5th, 1934, and was Bianchi's adopted mother's nephew. Bianchi looked up to his cousin greatly, as he was rather affluent and was always wearing nice clothes, nice jewelry, Mm. and he could seemingly get any woman he wanted and would, quote, put them in their place. You're joking. Yes. So... It just makes me angry. (laughs) It's just, yeah, they're just terrible, terrible men. Oh, my gosh. Bianchi was eventually short of money once he had gone to L.A., and Buono came up with the idea of of them both becoming pimps and getting girls to work for them as prostitutes to make money, which I'm like, there are so many better ways to make money. Seriously. Non-illegal ways to make more money. But it was literally they just kind of decided to do it because they 
just wanted to put women in their place. Wouldn't it be more work? I mean, if they're lazy, it's it's more work to start exactly. a business like that than to go out and get a normal job. E- exactly. So, um, two girls named Sabra Hanan and Becky Spears, who were both teenage runaways, met Bianche and Buono and were eventually forced to prostitute themselves. Oh so basically, they like, trapped them into becoming prostitutes (sighs) though both spears and hanan were eventually able to run away after spears met a lawyer um his name is david wood and he was able to help her plan her escape and then inspired by spears hanan just like basically left also they were like this is a terrible situation we're leaving yeah which good for them yes good for them with no more prostitutes and no more income, Bianchi and Buono began to impersonate police officers in order to find and trap more women to work for them. So that's where the police officer shtick came from. Okay. Because they weren't initially, like, doing it to kill women. They were just doing it because they to wanted get... to trap more women. And that's why they were targeting mm-hmm. sex workers. So they would go find sex workers on the street or just, like, women on the street, and handcuff them, them, put them in their car, and then essentially just kind of kidnap them and oh force them to start being prostitutes. So, Bianchi and Buono also bought a, quote, trick list, which is a list of customers that prostitutes have, from another prostitute named Deborah Noble. The list was delivered by Noble, along with Yolanda Washington, who eventually became the first victim. Oh my gosh. Washington had happened to mention to the pair where she often worked, which was a certain stretch on Sunset Boulevard. When Bianchi and Buono found out that the, that the trick list they were given was fake, they tried to find and kill Noble. But when they couldn't find her, they took Washington, and thus their killing spree began. So that's how it all started. So that's how it all started. Oh my God. Isn't that absolutely crazy i just don't understand i yeah like no respectfully that doesn't seem like a good enough motive to me i am floored and it's and it's just like what's the mindset of being like oh we can't find one of them might as well go kill the other like especially because she washington wasn't the one that they were conversing with initially exactly and she wasn't the one that, like, had made up the fake exactly. trick list. Like, it, it wasn't on her. So it was just, like, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing, which was so unfortunate. When did they make the switch from targeting the sex workers to, like, the kids? I think it started to become just, like, the sex worker. Because from what I know is, like, word of mouth was a big thing at the time. Yeah. And especially when, like, sex workers, like, can only rely on each other. So I think it was a mm-hmm. word of mouth thing of, like, you know, pros- one prostitute to another would say, like, hey, like, these girls are getting taken. And when they started not being able to find these sex workers, then it started being, okay, well, we'll just else? take any other woman that we can find on the street. That's So it was all pretty circumstantial. And what they would plan would be, like we're gonna go out tonight and we're gonna get like someone it wasn't like we're gonna get this This specific person person. it was just like we're gonna go patrol this area yeah and whoever we can find we can find yeah so now we'll actually get into how the killers were caught oh yes (laughs) 
So after the Strangler's final killings, Bianchi fled to Washington State, where he found work as a security guard. There, Bianchi killed on his own Karen Mandick, who was 22, and Diane Wilder, who was 27, on January 11, 1979, and they were both students at Western Washington University. Bianchi lured the women into a house he was guarding. Oh my and then he strangled and killed them both. How did he get a job as a security guard? That's what I'm wondering. What on earth? Which, <laughs> oh, it was just like, and I don't think like background checks were really uh, a yeah. thing at the time other than like police officers running them. So it was just like, you know, I'm going to go as a security guard, which is not a low profile job. No. Like if you're going to. It's gonna, pretty ballsy. It's pretty ballsy to go into that. So, Bianchi did these final killings alone. Yeah. But this time, he didn't do them as well as him and Buono had done the other ones, and he left several clues and evidence that pointed to him. Bianchi was arrested the very next day. Oh, my gosh. And a background check connected him back to the homes of two of the victims that the Hillside Strangler had killed, um, along with his California driver's license, which pointed to him... Yeah. Having been in California. So that's how they were eventually able to be like, oh my God, you're the strangler. So after an an extensive investigation, both Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono Jr. were charged for the rapes and murders of all 10 of the Hillside Strangler victims. With Bianchi also being, you know, charged with the other two murders. Additional two murders. So Bianchi attempted to plea insanity and claimed that he what? had dissociative identity disorder, though this was proven false by psychologists. Huh. Bianchi then agreed to plead guilty if he would testify against Buono in exchange for leniency, what? which he did. What? Which I'm like, <laughs> throw him under the bus. Throw this man under the bus. Oh, they were actually lenient with the sentence. They were lenient with the sentence. He still. I'll tell you what his sentence okay. was, but it was like, what the heck? Yeah, it it was pretty bad. Buono's trial, though, became the longest trial in American history and lasted over two years. Really? And um, so Bianchi was the chief witness, technically, because. Even though he was the other killer, he was also the only other person to actually witness Buono carry out these things. But because of that, Bianchi was a largely unreliable witness. However, once Bianchi was beginning to testify against Buono, Mm -hmm. the jury convicted Buono on nine counts of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Bianchi was also given life in prison, though presiding judge Ronald M. George was quoted as saying, quote, I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case were it within my power to do so. Ironically, although these two defendants utilized almost every form of legalized execution against their victims, the defendants have escaped from any form of capital punishment. So... The death's, like, penalty is, like, illegal in California. Yeah. Um, It's banned. And so this guy's basically saying, if we had it, we would have put it on you. We would have used it, yeah. Which I agree with. Like, these men. That's crazy. Because they tortured those women. They tortured those women. Like, they put them through hell. It wasn't just, like, hey, you're dead. Like, it was... (laughs) It wasn't just, hey, you're dead. It wasn't just, like, hey, you're dead. It was, hey, we're going to rape you. We're going to strangle you. 
we might torture you, we might sodomize you, inject and then you'll be dead. Windex. Inject Windex. Burn your hands. Yeah. What were the other forms of torture that that was mainly it? It was the Windex yeah. and the burns, and then like, and then the ropes, the, strangling. the strangling. Yeah. Were the two victims um, that were just done by what was his name? The mm-hmm. one guy, uh, Bianchi. Bianchi. Mm-hmm. Did those have any marks? Yes. So he had strangled them. Basically, that was kind of how they also connected it. Is he had strangled them? Because it was like, similar in a similar fashion okay. of like the five point. But yeah, he didn't clean up his crime scene. He didn't like yeah. do any of that. So, so it was easier to connect back. So to it was him. easier to connect back to him. Oh my gosh. So Buono died of a heart attack on September twenty first, two thousand two, while incarcerated mm-hmm. in Calpatria State Prison. Bianchi is still serving his life sentence in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington, which I just think is Walla such a Walla funny Walla name. Washington. Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> no, I laughed at that too. I was just like, was that just like, that just like, just a, I don't know, Walla Walla, Walla, Walla. Washington. <laughs> he was denied parole on August 18th, 2010, but will be el- eligible to apply for parole again in 2025. He's applying for parole? Which I'm like... You have you to really know think. you're not. You think. <laughs> you think. He was like, I got leniency the first time. Maybe oh they'll give my me parole. All right. So now we can talk about the true personal connection. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is um, what I'm going to read you right now is a quote from my dad. Okay. Um, and I'm going to give you some background on this. My dad lived basically two doors down from angelo buono jr what mm-hmm. no way what and like grew up around that family so this is the quote that my dad texted me yesterday oh my gosh the buonos lived the next street over behind our house i went to school with angelo seniors and whenever my dad says senior angelo jr buono mm-hmm. jr was technically Angelo, like, he, he also named his son, like, yeah. Angelo Buono Jr. Okay. So, in this one, whenever I say senior, that's still Angelo Buono Jr. Got he it. just also named his kid Angelo Buono Jr. So. Classy. Classy. Yeah. So, I went to school with Angelo Sr.'s two sons, Angelo Jr. and Peter. Their dad, Angelo, didn't live with them in their teen years because I think the parents divorced. Hmm. Angelo Sr. had an upholstery shop in Glendale. What? When I was a junior and senior in high school, I needed some upholstery fabric to make speaker covers. Angelo Jr. took me to his dad's shop to get some. I did a lot of car work for other people, so I went there often and knew Angelo pretty good. What? When the whole hillside strangler thing was going on, I heard rumors on the street that it was Buono's cousin. I didn't know if the co- I didn't know the cousin and I had lost contact with Angelo Jr. I was working as a German car mechanic and heard on the radio one day that the hillside strangler had been caught. It was Angelo Sr. Oh and his cousin gosh. Ken. There had been a $75,000 reward for information. In those days, 75k bought a nice house like my parents' home. Street rumors were rarely reliable, so I never did anything that oh. so I never did anything about what I heard. It's possible I could have saved some lives, but I'm not sure about the timing. That was 44 years ago, and I don't feel any guilt, so even if I had called the hotline, it was late in the spree. What? 
is that not the most that's crazy? insane like i my dad had like told me the story way before i had ever started this podcast and i knew sort of the extent of the whole like hillside strangler yeah. like him being near it but i didn't know he was that, that close. close and connected too and connected and like all of the different areas are like my dad literally grew up like right beneath dodger stadium oh like gosh. he always said like growing up i could hear the dodger games if i walked <clears throat> outside and like these like were happening literally like in his backyard it's oh so crazy he didn't your dad didn't know any of the victims did he Mm-mm. at least i don't gosh. think my dad's listening right now so if he texts me he'll oh, tell me hi, whether Amelia's or not. dad <laughs> hello joe joe hi joe <laughs> um no but i think it was also because they were so such like random victims i mean yeah i hope my dad doesn't didn't know any prostitutes yeah. at that time <laughs> i hope he didn't know any prostitutes at that time um well i just wonder about the kids i just wonder the young ones yeah so i did some research and let me pull it up okay. like regarding what you know public response from this was yeah. and so let me pull that up real fast but honestly i've read a lot Okay, so my dad said no. He did not know okay. any of the victims. Good. Yeah, good. Good. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, so I, you know, do a lot of research for these stories, but yeah. this was the first one that I was like, I don't know. They don't shock me anymore, and this was the first yeah. story in a while to just, like, shock me. Really? Yeah. Because it was just, like, I don't know. There's something about it. I think it was maybe because this was, like, the most personal one. Yeah. It's just senseless. Like, it was like, it, I think I think maybe that's what had shocked me. So, oh, here we go. So, they had also, like, had relationships while they were in prison. Interesting. Um, and let's talk about oh, no. Bianchi's <laughs> relationship. So, oh, in gosh. 1980, Bianchi began a relationship with a woman named Veronica Compton. Okay. And so... Throughout his entire trial, she was completely on his side and, like, literally went to the stand to testify for him. Oh, um, my gosh. And she had come in after the stranglings had happened. So it was just, like, some woman here to, like, support him. Now, here's where it gets absolutely crazy. Oh, no. She was later convicted and in prison what? for attempting to strangle a woman she had lured to a motel in an attempt to have authorities believe that the hillside strangler was still on the loose and that the wrong man had been incarcerated. Are you kidding me? Is that not so... Are you kidding me? And here's what's even worse. While incarcerated, Bianchi had smuggled a semen-filled condom to her oh. in the <gasps> spine of a oh. book to make it look like a rape-slash-murder had been committed by the hillside strangler. Gross. And she was released from prison in 2003. Oh my gosh. Uh and I'm like this man hates women. You he's using you, babe. There's no way this man loves you. Did they know each other before he was convicted or, or was it like a I think it was just, like a Ted Bundy, hey, I'm going to yeah. like write letters to this man because I just Gross. think he's attractive sort of thing. Ugh. It's, it just gives me chills. I I'm sorry. Something has to be wrong with that woman. Just like the nature of the crimes, the fact that they were all so senseless, 
Yes. There was no personal connection. It was literally just like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm kind of bored. Maybe just like let's go dress as cops and see literally. who we can find. Literally. And it's oh, it just gives me weird. And then Did Blono the Jr. also oh, no. had a little, of little course. side piece on the side. Not a side piece. <laughs> In 1986, Buono married Christine Kizuka, a mother of three and a supervisor at the California State Employment Development Department. Mother of three? And she didn't help him do anything, like, weird, but I'm... That was another thing where I was like, you are a mother. Young girls had been killed in this. Did she have daughters? I I haven't... I wasn't able to find anything about who her kids were, but it was just like... Well, I feel like as a, a mom... As a mom, like... Like what? I listen. I know people can be charismatic and charming, yes. but what? And I know what people is, can be desperate. <laughs> I know sometimes y'all need love, but like, but you can find love in so many other places. Girl, you're worth so much more than that. You're worth so much. <laughs> know more. your worth. Oh my uh, gosh! They got married while he was in prison. While he was in prison, I would love to know what that looked like. Was it just like? Well, that was, was another thing I looked up. So I tried to look up what, like, what do prison murders look like? And let me pull up prison the, marriages, prison prison murders, or pr- not prison murders, <laughs> prison marriages. They just like, like sign a document. Um, so this is from um, the U.S. Marshal Services. Okay. Um, so prisoners retain the right to marry subject to restrictions, subject to restrictions as a result of their detention. So, the U.S. Marshals may allow a prisoner in its custody to marry unless the marriage would interfere with the prisoner's judicial proceedings or is inconsistent with the U.S. Marshals and or detention facility security concerns. So, it's just like, if your marriage doesn't, you know, make it so that you would, like, get out of prison early, you can do it. I'd be interested to hear of a case where that would be a possibility, Mm -hmm. like a marriage... And then something I also read, which was just kind of offhand, is apparently throughout the pandemic, there was, like, a rise in prison marriages. Really? Yes. Um, So this was, it was a New York Times article, and it basically said, um, with COVID-19 restrictions Mm -hmm. lifted, many inmates who had to postpone their weddings last year are hoping to finally tie the knot. However, the increased demand could, like, mean a longer wait. So it wasn't that the marriages were increasing, but, like, people just, were requesting them more. That's so interesting. And that also was interesting to me, because I was like, oh my gosh, like, even, like, prisoners got lonely during the pandemic. Like, <laughs> yeah. I guess I didn't, like, realize that. I was like, that, oh my god, the pandemic, like, reached I didn't even everyone. think about, yeah, the pandemic really did. I didn't think about prisoners, necessarily. I wonder what Bianchi did during the pandemic. He's still alive. He's that's still alive. Weird. What did he do in Wall- How old is he? He is, I think, 76, I want to say. Oh, my gosh. So. Is his, are they still married? Is his wife still alive? So they weren't able to get, so that was one of the circumstances. They weren't able to get married because she got convicted of trying to fake a strangling. Well, that stinks for them. Yeah. Or does it really? (laughs) I'm just kidding, no. Does it really? No. Yeah. I just think cases like this are so insane, but. You had told me once that, like, your mom had a connection to, like, Ted Bundy or something like that. Oh, well, my high school art teacher. Oh, your art teacher. Yeah. Yeah. We had, um, 
we had a retreat and mm-hmm. our some teachers were giving witnesses. I have no recollection as to what spurred this to be the topic mm-hmm. that she decided that she to just, talk. Like, decided to talk. About. I really have no idea how that came <laughs> to be. Um, but this was like the first. I heard about I heard this story before talking to my mom mm-hmm. about BTK and like learning more about that. Mm-hmm. So this was my first like introduction to serial killers. Yeah. Um, but she was the sorority sister, one of the sorority sisters in the houses in, in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I believe she was the one that saw him <gasps> leave the house. Whoa. Like and saw some of her sisters. Like, I don't know, she she gave this whole story about it and then talked about seeing him on death row and, like, speaking to him. And I don't, yeah, it was crazy. But I was so intrigued as to why all these women were falling mm. in love with him. He was Be- not attractive. No, well, <laughs> he was not don't- attractive. But the the movie that Zac Efron played him in. Yeah, I mean, Zac Efron's attractive. So but they like, looked so eerily look similar. So I mean, similar. The, the magic of movies. Mm-hmm. But it's just so intriguing that all these women were so attracted to him mm-hmm. and were, I don't know that I'd call it falling in love, but they yeah. were swooning over him when he's done all of these horrible things and they're, like, believing his innocence yeah. until he confesses all of the murders. All of the murders. Right Which before is, he's about to be like, executed. I want to say that's like a similar situation here with like Bianchi and Buono, but it's also like yeah. these women fully knew what these men had done and still exactly. came in afterwards and were like, I'm in love with you. I Like, what is... And I also like, part of another thing I looked up was like the motives of serial killers and it's like anger, thrill-seeking, financial gain, and attention-seeking. And obviously for this one, it was definitely just anger. Yeah. And then maybe thrill-seeking, but like... Because these, like I said, these are not good men. Like, no. what, what attracts... I could see, like, Ted Bundy because he was this, like, charismatic, you know, yeah. ladies' man. Very these much These two so. are like, we hate women. We put them in their place. Like, that to me was just appalling. Because it was like, what what attracts you to a man like that? What is... And I think I'm going to do more research once this episode's done. Is what's the psychology behind, exactly. you know, why do women go after these terrible men and it makes me wonder like you mentioned earlier like what what all did these women do to try get and get away from these guys like i don't know being being a sex worker i assume Mm. if you see police you probably don't want to be interacting Mm -hmm. with them and especially like you probably interact with undercover police officers on a pretty semi-regular basis i would assume yeah so I don't know. I don't know. I know. That's I'm so interesting. Like, I know. That's it's so crazy. Creepy. It's crazy. It's it's everything. <laughs> this is such a weird I mean, I guess all these cases are kind of weird, mm-hmm. but like this one I'm trying to think of another like serial killer that which I can't operated like thing. this. I wanted to see like I, I just couldn't. There was no I guess maybe like the Zodiac killer was kind of oh, similar. Oh yeah. But the Zodiac Killer was never caught. That's true. I just think all serial kill, all serial killers are like so different but so similar, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I want to see like inside their brains and I do too. I, I don't hope know. one day we can get like an extensive study of like why yeah. do serial killers kill. All right. Well, 
that's the story of <laughs> the, the Hillside Strangler. Um, do you have any final questions or comments? I'm trying to think. I mean, my big thing at the end of all of these is, like, to all of, I mean, to everyone listening, but specifically to those, like, female-identifying. Be safe. Be safe. Don't be walk home alone. Like, please no. be aware of your surroundings. Like Seriously. If you don't own pepper spray, go, go purchase it right spray. now. Yeah. No. Right now. Make your keys into some claws, some Wolverine claws yes. whenever you're walking. It's way better to bother a guy friend or a group of friends asking yes. for a ride or a walk home mm-hmm. and saving yourself this or anyone else yeah. you know. Yeah, just be aware of your surroundings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's the story of the Hillside Strangler. Um, thank you so much for Thanks joining for having me, today. me. You are now a part of the club that is <gasps> Club Crime. <Yay! laughs> and to all my listeners out there, please join us next week for another true crime story when we have another special guest joining us. And this has been Club Crime.